those companies are engaged in mass you know, data processing and, and surveillance capitalism. So, you know, the, the relationship between ByteDance and the Chinese government is not too different from the, the relationships historically that you find between certainly the U.S. Um, government and um, certain uh, tech companies. Welcome to the Wired Week demystifying tech law trends and educating about law in tomorrow's society. Hello and welcome back to The Wired Wig. My name is Annabelle Pemberton and in this week's episode I spoke to Maddie Asan, who is the founder of The Cyber Solicitor, which is a blog that explores the intersection between law, technology and society. In this week's episode, we discuss surveillance, looking at how people are surveillanced in the UK, how this is regulated, and then looking at how transfers of data from the EU to the UK will be affected by the latest Schrems 2 case after the Brexit transition period. And then finally, we look at the latest case that has hit the news concerning suggested espionage through the app TikTok. So enjoy the episode, and if you would like to check out Maddie's writing, you can head to the Cyber Solicitor, which I've linked in the bio below. Maddie, again, thank you for joining me on the Wired Week today. And maybe we can start off by saying, what is your motivation around starting the Cyber Solicitor, and why did you start writing on this website? Yeah, um, thanks, Annabelle, for having me on. So this. Cyber Solicitor, I started um, I started in my gap year, so after I finished my A-levels and then before I started uh, university, so this was back in um, October 2015, and um, I had been interested in uh, technology and well, the intersection between technology and law for, or since the um, Sun revelations in 2013, okay. um, about the science activities going on in the US and the UK. Um, so that really got me interested in sort of how technology impacts um, our lives and then how we try to control that impact, um, most notably through through the law. Um, I think um, I think uh, Jamie Susskind in his book uh, Future Politics sums it up quite nicely, where he says that the, the challenge is um, how do we, um, to what extent should we allow uh, powerful digital systems to dictate our lives and on what terms? So I thought the surveillance debate touched on that um, in particular. So I started the blog as a way to um, explore this interest a little bit more um, and allow me to research about it and then to uh, write about it as well and write about um, that intersection between law and technology and society, which I um, find so interesting. I've also found that as I've continued running the blog at university, um, I think my research and analysis has improved when it comes to some complex uh, and technical legal topics. I can dive deeper into them. Yes, no, absolutely. I remember when I was doing mooting at university, just doing that extra bit of research over across a series of specific topics was really helpful for kind of doing early revision in some sort of way because you were really deep diving into specific topics. So I think anything like 
doing creating a blog is really helpful for that as well you can really explore your interests in that way and it's great to see that you're writing more on the blog recently as well so what are some of the topics that you've written about lately so lately i wrote um a couple things on um trends too um which um in the data protection world has been quite popular thing to talk about um recently um uh, i've also done um i did a post uh last week on um uh, uk adequacy um and uh, the impact of shrimps too on that process as well I think the other things I'd also want to look at in the future as well on the blog, um, maybe look at the um, EU's digital copyright directive, um, okay, looking at um, upload filters and things like that. And then also maybe something on, on TikTok as well, because I think that's quite an interesting topic to look uh, further into. So those are some of the things that I've already written about and things I want to look into. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. I think especially these stories around apps that we're using every day, like TikTok, it's really law is typically seen as something so removed from society in the in the weirdest way. And I think a lot of these new stories around technology in particular are really getting closer to how we live, which is really bringing more people into the topic. So that would be great. I'm looking forward to seeing those posts. So Today, we're going to be talking more about surveillance in the UK. I actually did an episode on this a few weeks ago when there were several different news stories that were coming out around Amazon, IBM and Microsoft who were actually not supporting police anymore in their facial recognition softwares. So we wanted to keep the conversation moving and today we're going to be focusing on that and also bringing in a bit around Schrems 2 as well. So Maddie, maybe you can kick this off by starting to talk about maybe the different ways that people are surveillanced in the UK. Yeah, sure. So um, so in the UK, uh, most of the surveillance laws um, are governed by the Investigatory Powers Act 2016. Um, there are some other um, bits of legislation that regulate it as well, but most of it um, is in that 2016 Act. Um, and this act basically, it just basically regulates various surveillance powers that are used by the uh, uh, security and intelligence uh, agencies um, and the police as well for national security purposes, preventing and detecting serious crime and things like that. So the act basically covers five different um, uh, surveillance powers. So they include um, the interception of communications. Uh, the retention of metadata, the acquisition of metadata, uh, equipment interference, which is basically um, computer hacking, um, and then there's also bulk uh, personal data sets. Um, so the nature, scope, and the limits of these powers are all detailed in the Act, um, and they're also accompanied um, uh, by codes of practice, which go into more detail about how the powers are used in practice and of the operational um, purposes of them from the point of view of, of the UK government. So interception of communications, that, that's basically the um, government uh, trying to collect data whilst it's in transit. Um, and the kind of data that they'll be uh, collecting with that power would usually be um, the 
sort of metadata, so the who, the who, what, where, out of the data rather than the content itself. Um, and especially when nowadays a lot of um, uh, a lot of service providers and uh, a lot of um, technologies are using uh, encryption, it actually makes interception um, a bit of a weaker power because it doesn't it, it can't get past the 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 encryption, so it can't always get the the, the data that's sort. So it has historically been a frequently used power, but probably less so nowadays because of um, encryption and other technologies that make it a bit difficult. The other one you have is retention of metadata. Mm -hmm. So this is basically where the um, the government gives a notice to um, an organization. Well, it's defined in the act as a telecommunications operator, but it's actually defined quite widely. Um, okay. It doesn't it doesn't just include ISPs or um, sort of public networks and carriers. It also does include um, those organizations that provide uh, web-based email, messaging applications, uh, cloud-based services. There's actually quite a wide definition. Mm -hmm. um, so a retention notice can be served on any of these organizations telling them to uh, maintain or, or keep certain data um, for possible access um, by the government at a later date. Um, now, this, the, the data that they retain um, can be retained for a maximum of 12 months. Um, so after the 12 months, the, um, the, the notice will have to be renewed if they want to continue to keep, the government wants the, uh, the data to be retained again for another 12 months. And then there are some restrictions when it comes to uh, internet records. Uh, which is uh, you can retain the sort of the, the web page that someone's visited, but you can't retain the actual content or the, the stuff that they clicked on on that actual web page. Um, so there are some restrictions around that. But it's basically the notice can require the retention of um, a wide range of uh, communications data. Um, again, it's it's to do with the who, what, where about the data, not necessarily the content of it. With all of these different surveillance methods, do, do the police or anyone acting under the Act, do they have to have a reason for collecting the data or can they just be collecting and then they need a reason for processing or what, what's really limiting anyone under this Act collecting what they like and then using it without limits? Yeah, so generally um, all of these powers need um, to have an operational purpose. So any warrant or notice that's authorised and that has to be connected to a particular uh, operation, operational objective and the conduct that's permitted by or required under the notice or the warrant has to be um, necessary and proportionate to that um, operational objective. So the Secretary of State or the um, head of an intelligence service, whoever's authorizing or applying for the warrant, um, will have to take that into account before they can um, before they can serve the warrant or serve the notice um, on an organization. Um, and also for things like retention uh, retention notices, they do also have to take into account the uh, technical feasibility and the financial costs um, mm -hmm. of of uh, subjecting an organization to that kind of notice. And um, there, are, there does have to be some sort of consideration of how it impacts the service provider as well. So it's not sort of they can 
collect any data they want uh, whenever they want. There does have to be um, a particular purpose for it outlined beforehand, and they have to uh, think about how the data they're requiring um, relates to that particular operational objective. Yes, absolutely. And I suppose this also links to necessity and proportionality, uh, like having having these limits on use. Is that even... so? Legally speaking, necessity and proportionality are there, but are there instances or cases where we can see that necessity and proportionality have simply not been considered in these cases? Whenever um, you have cases involving surveillance powers, usually the scrutiny is to do with um, what's provided in the legislation itself and not always about the um, actual conduct of the intelligence services, because um, I think it's important to remember that a lot of these operations are secret um, and generally not open to um, at least public scrutiny in the court. There is a investigatory powers tribunal, which is a special court that does actually look at the conduct of um, the um, intelligence services um, and the, and uh, therefore, that that particular court is capable of looking at questions of necessity and proportionality in in more detailed um, fashion. Um, so, yeah, there have been instances where they've looked at the um, necessity and proportionality uh, um, questions in relation to warrants and notices. It's not something that um, is really open for the public to, to know about in any sort of detail. Most of it is behind um, closed doors. Under the Act as well, the Investigatory Powers Commissioner, um, who sort of leads all the oversight arrangements for the intelligence services, um, they are um, required to produce a report every year on um, uh, the sort of compliance with the Investigatory Powers Act um, and all the um, activity that's been going on um, by uh, within the intelligence uh, community. So that would also give some detail as to um, sort of compliance with the necessity and proportionality requirements. But generally, really detailed scrutiny of it is um, mostly behind closed doors. Do you think that there's the same level of scrutiny on online surveillance as there is in, in real life surveillance? So, for example, comparing tracking people online and what they're viewing on the internet in comparison to facial recognition software in shopping centres. The scrutiny on the sort of online activity, I think, has been has been subject to more scrutiny because of the Snowden revelations, and they related to that in particular, um, especially when it came to sort of collecting data from um, service providers who were involved in, in sort of mass data processing and collecting lots of data and then the state um, coming over and, and requesting it. So that aspect has been has been subject to a lot of scrutiny um, since then. In terms of stuff like facial recognition, I think we're still more at the infancy of in terms mm-hmm. of the scrutiny that's applied to that um, because it's, it, it's, it's fairly new in terms of, I guess, the um, uh, how widespread it, its use is. is I think at the moment, maybe the online behavior and the online activity and the surveillance of that has been um, regulated maybe a little bit more than the stuff like facial recognition, which is uh, a little bit more new. 
Yes, yes, I agree. And I know last week it was heard in the Court of Appeal, a case of someone who actually appealed against the use of his face in a facial recognition database and that he, I don't think he matched, but it was more the fact that he was in the area where facial recognition was being used and he wasn't actually given adequate notice about it. And the Court of Appeal did say it was uh, unlawful, but actually when you look at the comments from the police, they're more saying, well, actually, our use still fits in what they allowed in the court today. So it's really about how bigger changes is really going to have in reality because these technologies like you said are in their infancy stages and so in light you mentioned scrams earlier the the case that we heard last month uh, from the european court of justice relating to international data transfers from the eu to the us and the invalidation of the privacy shield so in in light of this recent judgment i know you can draw some parallels between this and the changes we're going to see with Brexit and when Brexit comes in, it comes into force truly next year after the transition period ends. So how, how do you think transfers from the EU to the UK are going to change and will, will they really be affected? Yeah, so, um, so when the transition period ends at the end of this year, um, the UK will become a third country for the purposes of the GDPR, and so therefore um, transfers um, from the EU to the UK will have to either be conducted on the basis of an adequacy decision by the Commission um, or the use of appropriate safeguards, which are your standard contractual clauses and BCRs. The most ideal scenario would be that the Commission um, deems the UK adequate uh, under Article 45 of the GDPR, in which case the free flow of data from the EU to the UK, so basically transfers that don't require any specific authorization, um, can continue. Mm-hmm. Um, if the UK doesn't get adequacy, though, um, then organizations will have to look for other ways to conduct transfers, um, such as the use of some contractual clauses. Um, but given the um, stipulations that were made in SHREMS about the use of standard contractual clauses and the quite um, uh, the quite burdensome obligations you have to follow if you're going to rely on those, mm-hmm, um, yes. it might make um, relying on those for transfers to the UK quite difficult. Um, and it does also depend on the reasons that the UK does not get adequacy as well, um, because, of course, the measures you have to put in place to ensure that adequate level of protection depend on where the deficiencies are in the UK's laws. And so hopefully, even if the UK doesn't get adequacy, the Commission is able to point out you know, reasons why or maybe hint at why that was the case so that organisations can act accordingly. So under the recent case of SHREMS 2, how can businesses reach an adequate level of data protection when they're transferring from the EU to the UK? The ECJ in SHREMS was um, quite clear about the the various steps you have to take um, when you're using FCCs to do transfers to a third country that's not been deemed adequate. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first step is to do, um, you have to do an assessment of the third country's um, laws, which includes its um, surveillance laws, that's essentially equivalent to the EU regime, so basically under the GDPR and the EU Charter. 
from that first step, the second thing you have to do is you have to determine whether the uh, standard contractual clauses on their own would achieve all the appropriate safeguards mm-hmm. um, that you need to ensure under Article 46. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they don't, then you have to look at some supplementary measures to try and make up for those deficiencies that you've identified. Possibly one thing that organizations might have to think about in relation to the UK is um, coming up with some supplementary measures to deal with um, possible deficiencies uh, in the UK's surveillance laws. Um, so things so things that, that, that organizations might want to look at is maybe having um, the, the data exporter um, imposing contractual obligation or some sort of obligation on the data mm-hmm. importer to challenge any requests that they get from UK government from uh, for for data, whether to retain it or whether they're asking for it to be given over. Um, for some of the powers under the Investigative Powers Act, there is a formal process um, mm-hmm. where you can do this. Um, like with retention notices, there is a formal process of review that you can um, engage where they basically, if you get a notice, you can send it back for review. Um, it gets reviewed by a technical advisory board that um, consists of people from representatives from public authorities, but also from industry. So they can look at the technical feasibility and the financial cost of the, of the notice. And then they produce a report that then has to get looked at by the Secretary of State and they can make changes to the notice based on that report, but then it has to get any changes have to be um, approved again by um, uh, the investigatory powers commissioner. So that that is that is one formal process you can engage in. But with the other ones, there isn't necessarily a formal process that you can engage in to sort of challenge um, any requests that you get. So you might try and open a dialogue with the government in terms of trying to find. Um, you know, more technical, more feasible ways that you could do this or ones that are not so financially burdensome and ones that don't depart too much away from your obligations under data protection laws. If organizations do go down that route, you can get situations like you did with um, Apple and the FBI from a few years ago when there was the San Bernardino um, terrorist and the FBI wanted to unlock his phone okay. um, and they tried to... Um, they they went to Apple to try and get it unlocked, um, but, but Apple made the argument that when your phone is locked with a passcode, it's basically encrypted. So the only person who can unlock it is the person who knows the passcode. Um, uh, yeah, and they were about to go to court um, about it, but the FBI managed to find a way around it anyway. The point is that if organizations do go down the road of being aggressive and challenging any requests they get from government, you might have more court cases like that. Um, but I think it would be an interesting development that we could see if um, organizations decide to go down that route. Yes, absolutely. And that sounds a bit more reinforced than the process that was in place, well, that still is in place in the US as well, about challenging the investigatory powers there as well, that if a company is requested to give data to the US authorities that they could actually challenge that. But the data around this is quite minimal 
online as well and it's quite mm. hard to find a process about how you'd be asked whether you'd even be informed whether if you're a processor for another company whether you legally have to tell them as well and that's that made it quite complicated as well so it'll be really interesting to see how the UK does respond to this because they do eventually they will hit these these situations with, with Brexit coming. As you said, they will be considered as a third party under the GDPR. So great, that was a fantastic explanation. Thank you. Whilst well, talking about surveillance, there is one media story that people, even if they haven't heard about the Investigatory Powers Act before, they would have heard about this new story recently in, in relation to TikTok and the US government saying at the moment that they are considering banning TikTok in the US because of the suggestion of espionage and surveillance issues around there. So do you have any comments around this new story? Yeah, um, I think it's quite an interesting one. But it's basically a social media platform um, that consists of short form videos, um, usually of people dancing to music or something like that. Very popular at the moment. Um, lots of users around the world use it. So the app collects a lot of personal data Yes. Um, about US citizens. Um, there was a, a recent story about um, how it was even collecting people's um, MAC addresses, network-related piece of data. I've even read stories saying that um, the, the app collects location data, collects data about the other apps you have installed on your device as well, all sorts of um, data collection going on there. So TikTok is owned by ByteDance, which is a Chinese company. So the concern in the U.S. is that um, when data is collected by TikTok, which is then accessed by ByteDance, because ByteDance is responsible, I think, for developing all the algorithms that it has for its various um, services, um, there is an equivalent of TikTok in China. It's not called TikTok or something else, but it's basically the same thing. And ByteDance um, develops the algorithms for TikTok and there's other um, platforms as well. So mm -hmm. I guess the concern for the U.S. is that that data can be accessed by the Chinese government, but also that the Chinese government can exert a certain amount of control whereby they can um, instruct ByteDance to develop their algorithm or to, to uh, run their platform in a particular way that um, is in line with the Chinese government's interest. And so it can be used for misinformation campaigns and possibly even to influence elections. Um, if you've got a platform that's got hundreds of millions of users um, who spend about 52 minutes per day on the platform, I think Facebook mm -hmm. users spend about 37 minutes. So yes. a lot of people using it um, for a lot of the time, lots of data being collected, but it's a massive opportunity for um, sort of doing some covert um, uh, operations and, 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 and trying to um, safeguard sort of Chinese interests. So that's why the U.S. Um, considers it a national security threat. I think the, the story about TikTok, I think, is interesting for, for three reasons. The first is that the, the other U.S. social media companies will perhaps be somewhat happy to see TikTok banned if that happens. Um, I think they'll be um, wanting to take advantage of the void. They'll be created in the market if it was to be banned. Um, even Instagram um, it's come up with its new platform called Reels. It has a similar concept as, uh, as TikTok. So I thought that was quite interesting. And then the second thing about it is um, that TikTok is not the only company that engaged in sort of broad data collection and data processing. 
operations. Um, Google and Facebook and others have uh, um, have also engaged in some quite broad data processing activities that they're also not that transparent about. So TikTok is not the only one that, that's guilty of this. And the third thing uh, about it is that I think it highlights quite an interesting um, relationship between the state and uh, private companies, uh, in particular in this sort of surveillance capitalism context. Um, I think historically in the US, you've always had um, a fairly close relationship between the US government and um, sort of high technology and the investment that goes into the research of that um, ever since, pretty much ever since World War II, there's always been quite a heavy involvement by the US government to ensure the flourishing of of sort of high tech, uh, especially in Silicon Valley. Um, And then ever since after 9-11, there's been obviously a heavy focus on the war on terror and national security. So there's definitely been an incentive to sort of um, help uh, prop up or even um, try and gain um, uh, help from those companies that are engaged in mass you know, data processing and, and surveillance capitalism. Um, so, you know, the, the relationship between ByteDance and the Chinese government is not too different from the, the relationships historically that you find between certainly the U.S. Um, government and um, certain uh, tech companies. I guess the difference, though, is that at least in the West generally, you do have uh, avenues for recourse. So you can challenge um, the government when it is engaging in its own surveillance activities. Um, those avenues might not be perfect and they might have some uh, drawbacks, but at least they're there and at least we have debates about how we could improve them. Whereas I don't think you really have that in China. Yes, no, no, abs- absolutely. And I thought it was really interesting that you said that it, it's not just TikTok that's collecting all this data all the other tech giants are, are guilty of it as well. But I think one thing about TikTok is that it's their personalization on their app is it's hyper-personalized. So when you're scrolling through TikTok, the more you stop on something and watch it, you will just see more of that. Whereas I feel that Facebook does have that technology and they are collecting that amount of data, but they don't personalize so specifically. Do you have any courses or books that you would recommend? I think I mentioned it earlier, Jamie Susskind's Future Politics. Um, Mm. That sort of gives an overview of how um, technology can, well, it is a really significant part of our lives, but how it can become an increasingly significant part of our lives and how we might want to deal with that. Um, I think it gives a nice overview of, of sort of the overall intersection between technology um, and society, um, or technology's impact on society. Maybe another book I'd recommend, um, Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Okay. Uh, it goes into detail about how um, Google in particular came up with its um, targeted advertising business model and how, how this whole idea of surveillance capitalism came about. It's really interesting. It's really insightful. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today and discussing surveillance with me. If anyone wants to check out your blog, how do they find it? You can Google search uh, the, the cyber solicitor um, and it should come up. 
uh, on there, or you can just um, type in the URL, um, thesidesolicitor.com. Great, fantastic. And I'll leave links down below in the bio. So thank you for joining me today and have a great week. Thank you very much. I'm Annabelle Pemberton, and you have just listened to the Wide Wig podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts. As always, if you liked what you just heard, be sure to follow this account on Spotify and follow the Wired Wig on Instagram for the latest tech law news and updates.